welcome to East Lake Nights. We are glad that you are here. Thanks for not camping, everybody. We're so excited that you aren't doing that because you'd be sleeping on the like wet ground or rocky ground. It's much better to be here. And we're finishing off a series today uh, called White Flag. It's been a series, a three-week series on surrender. And uh, the idea behind the series has been um, we, we kind of went down this pathway answering a question. Uh, the question is, what would happen, what would it look like if I were to uh, sort of run from God or run from what I know I'm supposed to be doing? So if you're a Christian, there's like this, you know, moral watchdog God who, like, you know, I find myself under his authority and accountability and all that kind of stuff, and, and you've tried to be a good person your entire life. And then for, for others, uh, maybe God has not been like a personal, you know, being for you. It's just been like, yeah, it's out there or whatever. But I, you, you try to remain true to yourself, and you try and be a good person so that if there happened to be um, some sort of a thing like that, then you could mark a box that says, I've been decently, decently good. And so, uh, but you've always, like in the back of your mind, maybe thought about what, what would happen if I, if I chose not to. And so, uh, what would it look like to go down that road? And we uh, incredibly get a chance to look at that kind of a lifestyle through a, the guy, a guy named Jonah, who had a, a book uh, written about him, or a, um, I don't know if he wrote it himself. We don't really know. The author doesn't identify themselves. But a story about a guy named Jonah and it's in the Old Testament, it's one of the minor prophets. And minor, just in terms of size, it's only about four chapters long. And for the first two weeks, we've accomplished two chapters, just one chapter each week. Um, and I'll just do a quick recap for you. Although, uh, we do want to present like this uh, website that you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. If you're in part three, so this is the end of the series. So if, if some of this doesn't make any sense or whatever, or you've missed this whole thing and you want to go back and listen to it, uh, you can go to that site and follow along there. Or any future series that we do this summer, because I know that there's a ton of travel um, during the summer. But in chapter one, it's the, like the real famous part of, this, of the story. In fact, when I say uh, the name Jonah, you, I immediately identify it with the, the whale or the fish or the swallowing thing. You know that that takes place. You're like, I don't really know the context of the whole story, but it sounded kind of like Pinocchio, but then like a little different. Um, and uh, that actually takes place at the end of chapter one. The beginning of chapter one, uh, Jonah, a prophet named Jonah receives a word from the Lord, is what it says, uh, to go to Nineveh, which was a, we know this was a city, uh, the capital of the nation uh, of Assyria, a very, very large city. Uh, Assyria is a nation who was kind of a perennial enemy of, of uh, Israel. In fact, they were the ones that invaded in the northern kingdom and kind of wiped everything out. Uh, they would be a world power at, uh, during that kind of time. And they would be popularized or known for um, something that was tough to be known for. Uh, they knew how to kill somebody and torture them in the most painful way possible. They would literally um, flay them or skin them alive and had figured out medically how to keep them alive for longer than anybody else. And so if you actually go to Google and type in flaying or um, being, you know, skinned alive or whatever, Wikipedia, the first entry is, this is what the Assyrians were known for. So you, you can do this. This is not like Brent history or even biblical history. This is just natural secular history, okay? Um, so that's the nation that he's been called to go to. Not surprisingly, he's like, I do not want to do that. That sounds like something I don't want to do. So here's our picture of, we've been confronted now with here, God saying, here's what I want you to do, and him saying, no, I'm not going to do that. So in chapter one, he gets on a boat and heads in the opposite direction. He's supposed to go east to Assyria. He goes west uh, to a city named Tarshish, which is like modern day Spain, which is basically as far in that world as you could possibly go. On the way on the boat, uh, on the way on the boat, there's a storm, and uh, then they're like, "What do we do?" Because this is like the worst storm we've ever seen. All the sailors who are like professional uh, commercial fishermen, that kind of thing, are like, "We've never seen anything like this. Um, somebody's done something. This is like." A message from the gods. This is bad omen, something, bad juju, something's going on. Uh, we got to figure this thing out. They find out it's Jonah. Jonah can like confesses it himself and says, well, what's the solution? You got to throw me overboard. This is the only thing that's going to appease uh, this, this, this whole storm and this thing. So 
they fight against it, they decide to do it. Eventually, as he's like swimming and bobbing there, a fish says, it says it comes up and a fish swallows him whole. And in chapter two then, he's inside of the fish and he begins to like pray, which, you know, you do, um, in, that, in that kind of a situation. Um, now, I, I said this, I've said this in week one and week two. I grew up in a church environment where this was kind of taught as this is something that took place. This is a historical story and then you kind of have to insinuate meaning for it. I also said that since then, I've read a plenty about how um, it's viewed as sort of a human parable on human nature, right? Um, so uh, if this idea of a fish swallow is too big of a thing to swallow for you, I'm giving you the permission because I think that there's actually perhaps even more value in reading why would, why would a nation choose to include this story, this fable, this myth, this whatever, as part of their kind of oral tradition or history about who we are, where we came from, and what we value in life. Why, why would this story be significant? Because some guy survived a whale attack, or is it perhaps something more than that? And I would venture to say it's something more than that that we'll get to tonight. So that's the significance of what's taking place here. Um, so you can follow along in this way. And the, the beauty of, if you view it as a parable, then when you read chapter one, you can kind of see yourself in the story. Uh, because how many times have you not wanted to do something, and instead of doing something you know you ought to do, you ran hard in the opposite direction, and you did exactly the opposite thing that you were supposed to do, and you did it without any consideration of like the, the ramifications, the consequences. You're just like, I got I to gotta go, and, and, and your mom was like, don't date him. I don't, I don't want you being around him, and not only did you run away with him, you got married to him or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just very extreme, irrational thinking in those moments. We've all been there. We've all done something like that, and then um, chapter two basically is if you've ever found yourself in a predicament where you really didn't feel like there was an easy out, not only an easy out, there's no obvious out. There's no, I got nowhere to turn and nothing to turn to. You find yourself crying out to the God that you maybe don't even believe in. How many times have people gone, I don't believe in a God, and then all of a sudden, like these extreme, terribly, terrible circumstances rise up, and all of a sudden, they're like quasi-religious. I don't even know if you exist, and I'm throwing things out there, but I'm throwing anything against the wall and seeing if anything will stick because I'm desperate, and in our desperate times, we cry out desperate prayers. So in, in a sense, we see ourselves in Jonah chapter one as the runners. We see ourselves in Jonah chapter two as kind of the people who with nowhere else to turn, we kind of turn to God even if we've never believed in him our entire life. This has become a viable option for us in this moment. So tonight, we're going to pick it up in chapter 3. We're going to go through chapters 3 and 4 tonight. Um, and uh, so we'll have to kind of move some quickly. In fact, there's going to be a lot of verses on the screen. There's no way if you're taking notes, you'll be able to write it down. Or I might fly through something. You're like, I have a question about that. Um, you should download the Bible app from Uversion on App Store, both Android or iPhone, and just have that on your phone. That's a great uh, uh, resource there, but also if you text the word notes to 97,000, all of these are going to be, anything that's on the screen is going to show up in that app as well. So uh, last week we ended with uh, uh, the prayer in the, in the belly in, of the whale, and then the whale spits him back out, and then verse one was, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah again, and I said, you'll have to come back next week to figure out what happens, and here we are. The, so the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, verse two, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Pretty much the same declaration as the first uh, uh, thing that he asked him to do. I'm not changing my story up. I want you to do the same thing that I asked you to do previously. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. This is, 
This is the author's way of trying to illustrate the, 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 the magnitude of the endeavor and really to kind of build up this, this uh, not nation, but this city of Nineveh. Um, because you and I have both been through Dayton, Washington. It takes you, what, 30 seconds? Imagine three days to get through something. He's trying to signify this is, this is huge. Jonah began to go, uh, Jonah, Jonah, excuse me, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. All right, a typical message that you've seen other people, they've changed out Nineveh for like repent or make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life or you will burn in hell. In fact, if you drove down G-Way, today I saw this. Today there's a guy out there holding a sign, some shirt with some verse on it, Jesus, God so loved the world, except now if you don't love him in return, he's gonna, you're gonna burn in hell for all eternity. That's been the basic message of this thing. I so badly wanted to get out of my car, stand next to him with a sign that says, ignore this guy, don't pay attention to this, this is ridiculous. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't, I chose not to, but because uh, I don't wanna waste my time and it's really hot out there. So um, that's my excuse. But uh, we've seen this. If you walk down the streets of Las Vegas or New York or LA, I mean, you'll see people with signs like this. We're, we're all very aware of it, and um, if you are, if you come from the other side, if you're not a Christian, then you point to that and be like, see, Christians are wacko. And if you are a Christian, uh, for the most part, you look at things like that and be like, see, buddy, you're given, um, this is a bad image, or this is a bad thing, you shouldn't, you know, because these things never work. Not only do I not believe in what you're doing theologically, okay, because I don't think that that's how God is, I also disagree with it from a methodological standpoint. I just, how many conversations have you had, this would be my question for them, where somebody comes up to you who's like, oh, I'm so curious, I'm seeking information on this, and then they've changed their lifestyle as a result. Because I would venture to guess it's not very many. The attitudes and the conversations that I see taking place are usually like primarily negative, like get off my street, what are you doing, you're crazy, anyways, whatever. This is his method. He goes to this city wearing like the A-frame sign on his chest that says 40 days, 40 days, and God's gonna burn this mother down. Anyways, he goes on, verse uh, five. Uh, the Ninevites believed God. This is, this is when the story, this is um, like if the fish thing wasn't believable for you, then what you're also asking me to believe, if this is historical, is that this method actually worked. And not unlike one guy who was also crazy, but apparently everybody in Nineveh. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, meaning it reached all the way to the top of that, in that culture, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, which was like a public sign of like, uh, like repentance and, and whatever, and sat down in the dust. And you're like, dude, I can't believe this thing actually worked. And then the king issues a public decree. We'll pick it up in verse eight. In the middle of the decree, he says this, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. This is what they were known for. They were known for violence. This is what makes us, us. And we're gonna, you guys, we gotta stop. We gotta knock it off. Who knows, verse nine, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. By the way, using Israel's term for God in this language, Yahweh God, not the gods, not like, all right, the gods are angry with us. We gotta sacrifice a few more animals. We gotta do certain things. In this story, he uses the word, the God of Israel, the God we apparently don't believe in and don't even know about and didn't even know about 24 hours ago. 
is angry with us, we better fix some things and move on in this way. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, if this was a story about how, and the point of this story was you better not do God wrong or else he's gonna get you, then this story would end in chapter three. If there was no fourth chapter and all we had were the three, you could make an argument that that's the point of the story. Don't cross over God because he's sovereign even when you don't believe in him, and yet he's a little bit soft because if you repent, he's gonna threaten some things, but if you, you know, can in the last minute do the right thing, then perhaps he may let you get off with just a warning. That's essentially what we would have if all we had were three chapters. But luckily, we don't. Now, uh, because I don't think that's the point of the story. Also, there's a transition in this point that I'm going to show you in just a second where we have often bought into the idea, or if, if all we had were three chapters of this, we f- would probably find ourselves rooting for Jonah at this point, wouldn't we? Because, yeah, he knew he was supposed to do something, but he didn't want to do it, so he ran in the opposite direction. But how many of us would say, you know, I mean, we've done that. We, every one of us have done that. So we find ourselves in that. We'd say, yeah. And then he puts himself in a predicament. God kind of sends a whale and saves him. And in that, he recognizes his fault early. He prays a seemingly pretty sincere prayer of repentance, of, man, I shouldn't have done that. God, if you'll give me a second chance, I'll make it right. God then gives him this second chance. He goes into Nineveh, and lo and behold, his actions work. Like, the people repent. Oh, dude, what a, like, success story amidst the odds, you know, that are stacked against you in terms of going and and saying to people, 40 days and this whole thing burns down, and then they listen and they repent, and it says everybody's that, including the king, like Jonah. You are a modern-day hero for people who live in this vein of that sort of evangelizing or proselytizing or whatever you want to call it. This would be, like, a huge thing. So we would find ourselves seeing Jonah as the protagonist and probably one that we actually like and sort of identify with. Now, as we go on, we are going to realize that there is a dark side to Jonah, okay? That there is something that gets exposed that is not all that great. And, and you, you've seen this, you've heard about this, right? You've seen people in the, in, in the media, whether they're a movie star or a famous person or, or a politician or whatever, that on the surface, everything looks great. And then there's some article that comes out in some magazine where you're like, not a great dude. And you're like, oh, but I really loved him in the Cosby show. Anyways, there's all kinds of other things that you'd be like, okay, now that changes my perspective on who that is or you know, how I'm supposed to view them or now I can't watch that show the same way. Anyways, that's about to take place here. Ready? Jonah chapter four. Uh, but Jonah, uh, but to Jonah, excuse me, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. What seemed very wrong? that God would forgive these people. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Meaning, maybe he wasn't just out to save his own neck. Maybe there were ulterior motives in him running away from what he was called to do. And here it is. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity, which sounds pretty positive. That sounds like something on your grandma's house in a cross stitch 
on the wall or something. You know what I mean? It's on her pillows that God is a gracious God, slow to anger, quick to compassion, and will relent if asked to do so. In fact, it sounds a lot like a New Testament verse rather than an Old Testament verse, doesn't it? Typically, Old Testament God is like angry and frustrated and how, how could you be so blind? I'm going to send this fire down. Seven people are going to die. You pick your seven, that kind of thing. It, it feels very dark and like you don't want to get on the bad side of that God. And then in the New Testament, you hear um, Jesus coming and saying, um, well, let me give you a real picture of who God is. Uh, I'm, I'm the best icon of who he was. And Paul talking about a God who feels like a little bit different. In fact, it feels like if, you, if you're not uh, if, you, if you haven't kind of thought through what the claim of Jesus is, in other words, that, uh, that there is no clearer picture of who God is than what I'm telling you, um, then you can feel like there's Old Testament God and then there's New Testament God. And I don't, I'm not smart enough to figure out how all these things work together, but I know that the Bible has two parts to it and you're supposed to believe it all, so let's just go for it and we'll figure out the mess. Uh, you know, we'll leave that up to the really smart people. And yet this verse right here comes in an Old Testament picture to an Old Testament prophet. And it comes not somebody going, I'm so thankful that you are this way. It's, I'm so angry because I knew you were like this. And what I wanted more than anything else was for them to receive the justice that they were due. That's what's taking place here. That's what Jonah is so angry about. That's what he said is the motivation for why I ran. I wanted there. Bad people, and they deserve bad things to happen to them. I'm a good person. I deserve good things to happen to me. They are bad people. They deserve bad things to happen to them. Listen, as, as bad as we want to mock Jonah, how common is this in just an American mindset and even American evangelical mindset? Uh, good people should be rewarded. Bad people should be punished. I always place myself in the line of good people, Right? If there was a spectrum, I'm not the best, but wherever the line is in terms of good and bad, I'm like on this side of the line, uh, and, and probably maybe close to it, but I'm definitely a good person and deserve blessings in life. And as a result, I kind of want you to punish bad people. I definitely don't want you to bless bad people because then I question what is the, what is the benefit of being a good person? If bad people don't suffer, then why would I need to be good? Why not? Like, this doesn't work. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair that you would operate in this way. We have a problem with God's fairness because we feel like we're good and we want other people who are bad to be punished for what they do. Remember how I said you can see yourself in chapters one and two? You can sort of see yourself in chapter three at some point too, right? Whether it's a work issue and you know you work harder than the people who are getting all the credit for this project that you, you put more effort into it than they did, and they're getting all the credit for it, and you're like, no, no, she should be fired, not promoted. This is ridiculous. I want bad things to happen. I want her to get a flat tire on her way to work. That's what I want. I, I, I just, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm trying not to be mean, and, and I would never say that, I would never verbalize this out loud. But I want, if you've ever cheered for somebody else to fail, even though it has nothing to do with your success, it doesn't make you any better. It just means that they fail, which I guess in a sense, if you don't fail, then that makes you look better. But for the most part, we, we, it's like I have no personal investment thing in this. I don't get richer when you go bankrupt. That's not how this whole thing works. And yet, like if something bad happens, I'm kind of like, oh, 
That's so terrible. Mm, tell me more. How bad was it? Ooh, she dumped you how? Oh my gosh. Wow, that's slightly embarrassing, isn't it? You know what I mean? That's the sickness. And Jonah is on exhibit A for this. He had surrendered himself to God's moral will. Like, if you want me to do this, fine. I'm gonna drag my feet into this, but you're gonna have to like make a whale swallow me. But eventually I'll give in and I'll cave in and I'll do the thing that you want me to do. But I'm not gonna surrender how I think you should operate and what I think you should do and how I think you should act as God if fairness is important to you. You should do this in this way. I'm like surrendering, but impartial. I'm carrying into this surrender like, all right, you're God, I get that. You're like better than me, okay? But like, you're a better version of me, but you're not like completely other than me. And so like, let's bring this into the negotiating table. Now, you have more to offer me than I have to offer you. However, what I will give you is church attendance. Uh, I will give you a pretty good moral uh, map for my life. I will give you, I'm going to be a kind and generous person to the people that like me, and hopefully sometimes with your help to the people who I don't like, um, and, I, and I do all of these types of things, and then I kind of expect you to operate in fairness, not only just blessing me, but condemning people who don't live up to my elite standard. Listen, you want quick ways to figure out if you're judgmental, or do you expect God to bless you when you're good, and do you criticize God when he doesn't condemn people who don't live up to your elite standard? That's judgmentalism boil down to it. And the American church is really good at it, by the way. We're so good at this. And this is what's taking place in this story. I got to move on. Verse three, now, Lord, this is his response. He's so frustrated. He's so angry. This isn't how you're supposed to work. This isn't what you do. This is, no, don't talk to me about fairness. Don't tell me you're a just God if this is how you operate. Instead, I want you to take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I would rather die than live with a God who doesn't operate by the terms of fairness that just make sense on a rational scale. And I, if, it, I don't know how you, you know, work with this. I'm out. I'm out. I would rather die. I'm out. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? It's almost like he's like telling him, hey, look inside of you. Wasn't it you two chapters ago that got in a boat and headed to Tarshish when I asked you to do something? Who are you to tell me about how I should operate? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. (laughs) This is him waiting for fireworks. This is him hoping to get a show. I hope fire comes down. I hope that God sees through this king who like probably didn't mean what he said. I, I hope that uh, like half the city is like, eh, they changed their mind and then they like go back to their evil ways. And I wanna be here to watch the destruction because nothing makes me feel better than what, listen, if your spirituality is enhanced by the destruction of other people, Um, or maybe not the destruction of other people, but by the downfall or the pain or the suffering of other people. If if you hold a sign that says, repent because God loves you, and if you don't, you'll spend eternity in hell, it feels like you kind of want the second half of that verse or the second half of that phrase. If you don't repent, here's what's coming for you. Are you kind of cheering for that? 
Because that's what it kind of feels like. Have you set up a tent on the side of the hill and you're looking at it, waiting to see what God does to the city? Because that's what it kind of feels like a little bit. And who are you to say to me, or who are you to be angry with me about how I operate? Verse six, and this is where it gets super interesting, you guys. If it hasn't been interesting up to this point, this is where it gets a little bit crazy. In fact, have you ever watched a movie where halfway through it feels like the writers like lost their plot and they're like, let's just throw in some crazy stuff and see what lands and see what takes place. Like if you've ever watched, um, remember Dumbo as a kid? Where like you're watching this like movie where like you get it, like the first part is like the elephant with huge ears. And you're like, oh yeah, he's gonna get bullied and gonna get mocked because he's got huge ears and looks different than everybody else. And then there's like that scene where he uh, drinks too much fizzy drink and all of a sudden he's got these dreams and he's drunk, right? But like it's a kid's movie, so you're not supposed to know that. So I don't know why parents let kids watch that movie. I don't get it. And then he has these dreams and all these like weird clown figurines are like dancing and doing all, and it's like 10 minutes of like LSD-driven madness is what it is, basically. And it's Disney back when Disney was crazy. Anyways, um, that's kind of what happens here. Listen to this. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. This feels like a kid's book, doesn't it? He was so happy about that plant. I wonder what happens next. Turn the page. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. Oh my gosh, a hungry little caterpillar. I wonder what he was going to do. Which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said it would be better for me to live or die than to live. Second time he said that, by the way. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about a plant? All of a sudden, he's saying, you be, now you're angry at me about a plant? Are you really, are you serious right now? You, you, this, this is now so important. You're bitter at me. You're angry at me. And look at what he says. It is. I am fully justified in being angry with you about this plant. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. This is classic example. One more time. Seeing ourselves, and where do I see myself in this? This is classic me getting frustrated at something, something that's kind of significant, and then because I don't know how to deal with that, I make it about something else, something smaller, right? If my wife and I are having issues, or if you and your spouse are having issues, right? Let's just take it that. That's probably safer. She's here tonight. Anyways, if you and your spouse are having issues, and it's like, it's like serious, deeper stuff, and then all of a sudden, you come home from work, or she comes home from work, or something like that, and there are dishes in the sink that didn't get done, and she starts flipping out, or he starts flipping out about the dishes. I just want you to do the dishes. And you're like, the dishes? Are you serious? Like, you want, I'm, I'm so angry with you that you didn't pick up this, or do this, or you forgot about this. And you're like, I'll do it. Let me do it real quick. No, 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 no. That's not it. I don't want you to do it now. I wanted you to do it before I asked you to do it. And you're like, so the dishes are a big deal now. This is a big deal. This is worth fighting over and yelling over and scaring the kids in the bedroom. This is a big enough deal to talk about. Yes, it absolutely is. All right, all right. Well, let's talk about the dishes then because clearly, and, and then in the heat of it, you know, you don't want to bring this up, but afterwards you're like, okay, clearly it wasn't about the dishes. What's going on? Is there something happening at work? Is there something happening in the family? Is something happening with your parents? What's going on with this? Why is this such a big deal for you? And it's because we haven't dealt with the bigger issue at hand. He points this out, right? God says, are you seriously angry with me about a plant? Yes. 
it is okay for me to be angry with you. And I would rather die than watch this plant struggle, right? But the Lord said, verse 10, you've been concerned about this plant, although you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. In other words, somehow, this, and again, this is part of the, the part of the thing where you're like, okay, what does this mean? He's trying to say, listen, 24 hours ago, you didn't even know this was a thing. And now it's like a make or break deal for you. Can you, can you understand that? There's a root issue going on. Can you understand that there's more at work? There's more at play? We're not talking about something that's big here. What's the big deal? And here it is. He's going to tell him what it is. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And then that's it. Roll credits. That's the end of the story. That's the end of the book. This is how the author of Jonah decided, you know, I'm done. I, I figured tonight I should just like read this last verse, close it, prayer, and then we just go home. But it would be like, what? I mean, like, what's the point? What, do you, what is the point of this? And here's what I think the point is. I think that the reason that the people in Israel at that time, who probably found themselves in captivity, right? We're trying to make sense of who we are, where we came from. We feel like we've been called by God uniquely, but now we find ourselves in captivity for at least up to 70 years in Babylon, and we're trying to go like, who are we? What, and what, what is this thing all about? I thought God was like our God and, that, and like all powerful over everybody else, and now we find ourselves in this spot where like other gods seemingly have won, and what does that mean for us? How do we resolve all of this? How do we connect the dots? How do we make sense of this situation? Because I don't think that God should bless the Babylonians or the Assyrians. I don't think that God should bless them, that he should like avenge us and fight against them and bring justice to them because they're not all that great and they don't have temples and tabernacles and cool steeples and churches and, and they don't follow the 10 commandments and they don't and they don't and they don't and they don't and we have all kinds of, we build a case against them because it is natural tendency for those who are inside to build a case against those who are outside. It somehow makes us feel better. And he's approaching this and he's going, listen, I do not do things on your terms. You do not have any space to tell me how to do God. I'm God. You're not. You're an idiot who's obsessed with a plant that you didn't know about for 20, you know, 24 hours ago. That's how you live your life. Why don't you leave the God peace to me? And when you approach me, you do not approach me with a negotiating option. I'll do this if you decide to you know, bless me and condemn those who don't live up to my elite standards. You don't surrender partially to me. Surrender requires all of it, all of it. And in those moments where you don't understand why I'm doing what I'm doing, would you choose to insert into that gap of knowledge, trust? I don't understand why you're doing this. But you know what? You're God. You don't have to answer to me. You're God. You get to do what you want. I, I may not ever understand it. Or I may pray, and you invite prayers of doubt. You invite prayer. Through, I mean, throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Psalms especially, you see invitations for, you frustrated, you angry, you feel like life's not fair, bring them to me, I get it. I may not have an answer for you and circumstances might not change, 
But at never one time does he say, I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to hear about that. We're invited to vocalize those things. And yet trust and faith leads us to say, even when we don't have the answers to that, why, why, why? You know what? Your thoughts are higher than mine. Your ways are different than my ways. And I'm glad that you're God and I'm not. I wouldn't want that responsibility. May I lean into you. May I lean into this waiting period where I'm experiencing things I don't understand and I'm waiting to understand it or I'm just waiting to persevere and get my way through it. Now, a few months ago, Kyle and I were driving in the car and we had both started talking and we were just kind of recapping our days and, and uh, we began talking about... Um, some of you, uh, some of the people in our church um, who are going through some, some things. And I love my job. I love what I get to do. But one of the uh, byproducts of my job is I get to hear the really cool things about what's going on in people's life, and I get to hear the really crappy stuff too um, because people want to talk to their pastor about, hey, I'm struggling with this, and not, no, nobody knows about it, uh, or my spouse knows about it, but that's it, and I, I, don't, I don't want you to tell anybody else about it, but I just needed. And I don't, I don't expect answers from you either. I mean, like most of the time they're not coming to me going, what should I do? It's just more like, I know you can't do anything, but you know, the test results are coming back Saturday and I'm really struggling with this. And if you could just be thinking of me or praying for me or whatever, right? So we're sitting in the car and we're driving and uh, we, we, some names start popping up of, of uh, hey, if you, if you think about it this week, could you shoot so-and-so a text? They're struggling through some stuff and it's just like, it's just a mess. Life's a mess and it's totally unfair and it's not their fault. It's not a consequence of their decision. It's just like life sucks, right? The brokenness of the world and the damage of sin and all of that. And so um, she would say one, and then I'd be like, oh, that reminds me of this and this. And we just kept bouncing back and forth, and we're like, ugh. Like, it's just what, it was like depressing. It was like Debbie Downer drive home, right? And she, uh, she reminded me of a song that we had heard, a song at a church that we went and visited a few months back. And, she's, and she started putting it on Spotify and played it over the car radio. And she's like, all I want to do, I so desperately want to sit them down. And I don't have the right words to say all the time to like, you know, make it like, I wish there was like this phrase that I could be like, here, this, and then you feel better, right? Good. Let's move on. Um, it doesn't work like that. But she was like, this song, the lyrics of this song put to words how so badly sometimes I feel that I just want them to hear this and, and uh, let them know that, you know, I'm, I, I'm here, uh, I love you, support you, and all that kind of stuff. So I asked the band to come back up, and they're going to play this for our, our communion song. And uh, the song is called Take Courage, and um, in it, uh, there's a phrase in there, take courage, um, my, my heart, stay steadfast, my soul, and then he's in the waiting. He's in the waiting is like this like common refrain, the whole song. And that message right there is so important in this, because in the same way that Jonah didn't understand, God told him, in a sense, like, I, I don't expect you to understand. I expect you to trust me. I expect you to believe that I'm in the waiting on this, that my ways are higher than your ways, that I don't do things the way that you tell me to do them, that I'm God and, and you're not, and that's okay. Let's pray. Father, boy, we are reminded in this text of how many times that we've like come to the negotiating table with you and how that's just not how you operate. And this story is 2,700 years old. 
And yet, as we read it, we go, that's kind of me. Every chapter, we'd be like, that's a little bit of me. I see myself in that. I see what I've done there. I don't know why I get a thrill or a kick out of watching other people fail, but somehow it does something in me. And it's really bad when it comes to not just like things in life, but like how I expect you to kind of leverage rewards and punishments and all that kind of stuff. That's when it gets really tricky and nasty. And I realize, man, I'm, I'm broken, and that's not who I want to be. And when we've been on the suffering side of those things, we oftentimes find ourselves like fighting against you and saying, why can't you be fair? Why can't you do this? Why can't you operate in, in a way that just seems so rational to us? And yet we do recognize our limited ability to understand. And the perspective that we have is not the same perspective as you. Help us to trust, to lean hard into you, into who you are, and to see that you are in the waiting, even when we cannot see it. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life and the courage to act on it. In your name.